So church, today as we continue with our series, Revealing Jesus, we come to a very significant portion of the book of Revelation. If you've been here for the past 14 segments of this series, we've been spending most of our time going through the letters that Jesus dictated to the seven different churches that were located in Asia Minor, which is known today as Turkey. It's been a fascinating study on the literal historical and spiritual relevance of each church and how they are a very clear picture for us today of the current state of the church in the 21st century, of the type of church Jesus is coming back for, and in turn, the type of Christian lives we need to cultivate as we wait with anticipation for the Lord's imminent return. And so as we look here on the timeline of the book of Revelation, if you could put that first slide up for us, this gives you a picture of everything that takes place throughout the entire book. We've just come through the church age, which is chapters 1, 2, and 3, that small section right at the beginning. But today we move into a pivotal section of this book because this is where we start to address the topic of the rapture. We come to the section of the Bible where the true church of Jesus Christ will be taken from the earth to meet the Lord in the air before the tribulation and before the second coming of Jesus Christ and where he physically places his feet back on this earth. I'm going to make that argument today and next week because this is a doctrine that we should all have a better understanding of. And by the way, it's a really special moment for Christians to look forward to. The snatching away of the bride of Christ and to be caught up with the Lord in the air is something that we should all be excited about. Amen? Amen. Now, just to set the tone for where we're going, the doctrine of the rapture is probably one of the most controversial doctrines of the Bible. Because even some of the, the greatest theological minds of our time and times past, you know, with these people, there are differing views when it comes to this doctrine and specifically what it means in relation to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Let me give you a brief breakdown of the different views. Have a look at the, the next slide with me. Pre-tribulation rapture is a view suggesting that the rapture will occur before the tribulation period or what is known as the great tribulation. Believers will be taken up to meet Jesus in the air, and then a seven-year tribulation period will follow, culminating in the second coming. Mid-tribulation rapture is where some believers or some believe that the rapture will happen in the middle of the seven-year tribulation period, and this interpretation suggests that believers will be taken up before the worst part of the tribulation begins. Post-tribulation rapture is a view suggesting that the rapture and the second coming are part of the same event and will occur at the end of the seven-year tribulation period. Believers will go through the tribulation and then be raptured. You also have a millennialism view which focuses more on the thousand-year millennial reign. You have premillennialism which holds to the view that Jesus will return before a literal thousand-year period of peace and righteousness commences. Premillennialists often anticipate a period of tribulation before Jesus' second coming, but as I said, don't always agree on when that's going to happen. 
Post-millennialism is a view that suggests that the second coming will occur after a period of time during which the world will gradually become more Christianized, resulting in an era of peace and righteousness. After this period, Jesus will return to usher in the final judgment. And our millennialism is a view that rejects the idea of a literal thousand-year reign and interprets the millennium symbolically. Our millennialists believe that the present church age fulfills the figurative millennium and the second coming will happen at the end of the age and then the final judgment. Most premillennialists and our millennialists don't believe in the concept of the rapture. So church, just by those short descriptions, you can see how many differing views and interpretations there are on this doctrine. And that's why I want to spend some time over the next two weeks showing why we as a church take a view of a pre-tribulation rapture and we'll let the Bible speak for itself. Now just to settle everyone's heart this morning, if a Christian has a different view to you or to me on the rapture, that is not going to exclude them from going to heaven. This is not a doctrine that should divide Christians, amen? If people differ on the resurrection or, or on Jesus being the only way to heaven, that's a different matter altogether. Because then we've got some serious contending to do for the faith. But as long as we are agreeing on the final outcome and how to get there, this is not something that should in any shape or form divide the body of Christ. The main purpose of digging deep into the doctrine of the rapture is really to appreciate the depths of Scripture to have a better understanding of eschatology, which is just a fancy word for the study of end times, and to correctly prepare us as, uh, in our Christian journey for the Lord's return. That's our main focus as we go through these amazing portions of God's Word. And like I said, let the Bible speak for itself. Now, church, before we even start reading from chapter 4, I'd like for you to turn back in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. If you recall, right in the beginning of the series, I pointed out a verse that gives a beautiful outline of the book of Revelation. Can you remember what that verse is? Revelation chapter 1 verse 19. When Jesus is given instructions to the apostle John, he says to him here in verse 19, Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. And so the different tenses in this verse are an outline for us of the book of Revelation. Firstly, the things which you have seen is what we read in chapter 1, when John sees the glorious appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ in this vision that he has. Secondly, Jesus says to him, write also the things which are, present tense. And remember, John is writing in the time period of the church age, which we are still in. For those of you who were not here, the church age began after Jesus rose from the dead, ascended back into heaven, sent the Holy Spirit. The church was born on the day of Pentecost, which then began the church age, and it will continue until Jesus comes back for his church. And then thirdly, Jesus says, I want you to write about the things which will take place after this. Now, in the original Greek language that the New Testament was written in, 
The words after this in Greek are metatauta. Metatauta. So as we head now into chapter 4, I want you to notice with me, as we just read verse 1 for now, that metatauta are the same Greek words that are used at the beginning of verse 1 and at the end of verse 1, which indicates to us, church, that this is a transition from chapters 1, 2, and 3, which indicates, which deal with the church age, and now we are looking into the future. Right, let's read verse 1 together. After this, the Greek words metatata, after this I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. So like bookends there in verse 1, he begins with metatata and he ends with metatata which is letting us know, and I know I'm belaboring the point, but it is letting us know that we are now transitioning into future events. Does that make sense, church? Now, just a quick observation to make here. Can you remember some of the promises that Jesus made to the church at Philadelphia? The true church? The church that Jesus only had good things to say about? In Revelation chapter 3, verse 8, he says to this church, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one can shut. Hold on to that thought. And then he says to them in verse 10, Because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth, which is a reference to the tribulation. So get this church, he promises to keep them from the hour of trial, and that he has set, them, set before them an open door that no one can shut. And only a few verses later, here in Revelation chapter 4 verse 1, John says, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. That was the promise for the church that would be raptured. And John is now seeing the fulfillment of that promise. And listen, church, I'm not going to make a doctrine on that single observation, but it certainly seems like this is the open door for the church that will be raptured and taken up to heaven and will be spared from the hour of trial. Now, we haven't yet gotten to chapter 6, but between chapters 6 and 18, if we could have a look at that timeline again, the Bible describes devastating, cataclysmic and catastrophic events that will take place upon the earth at a future time called the tribulation period, or what is known as the Great Tribulation. The Bible tells us that at some point in the future, there will be seven years of severe tribulation upon the earth. These cataclysmic events, as described between chapter 6 and 18, speak to us of wars, famine, the scarcity of fresh water, global economic collapse, natural disasters around the world like earthquakes, meteor showers, hail and fire will come upon the earth in a much greater magnitude than what we've ever experienced. It's coming. And the reason that I draw your attention to this is because the big question then becomes, where are Christians going to be during this great tribulation that comes upon the whole earth. 
Now, again, it depends what your eschatology is on that, but a pre-tribulation view which we hold to is that the church will not experience any of these events that will take place during this seven-year period. So, church, firstly, before we get ahead of ourselves, what is the rapture and why should we be looking forward to it? It's a good question to start with, right? When we talk about the rapture, this great hope for the church, the first argument that normally comes back is that it is a word that is found nowhere in Scripture. People say, listen, the rapture can't be true because it's mentioned nowhere in our English version of the Bible, which is correct. But did you know that the word Trinity is found nowhere in the Bible, even though that's clearly a doctrine that we hold to as believers? And did you know that the word Bible is not found in the Bible? But we believe that the Holy Bible is the inspired word of God, every single part of it, right? And that's why we study eschatology, in order that we might correctly understand and articulate what the rapture means. So just as a quick outline and synopsis for you, this is what it means. The rapture is a moment in the future where there will be a sudden return of the Lord Jesus Christ in the clouds to physically snatch Christians from the earth who are still alive prior to the start of the Great Tribulation. Why? So that they will not experience the devastating things that are coming, coming upon the earth. That's basically what the rapture is, and the doctrine of the pre-trib position is exactly that. Jesus is going to come suddenly, and he only comes in the clouds the first time. And then after the tribulation, he comes down to the earth, which is known as the second coming, but we'll get to that eventually. So church, just to build the understanding of what the tribulation, excuse me, of what the rapture is about... I'm going to take you to several verses in the Bible that speak to this event. And I first want to draw your attention to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 15 through 18. You can go there in your Bibles, or we'll have it on the screen for you as well. This is what the Apostle Paul wrote. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. So church, this is intended to be comforting to us as a reminder of God's grace that is upon us as Christians. And the reason I underlined the words caught up in verse 17 is because that's where we get the word rapture from. In our English Bibles, it says caught up, but in the Greek language in which the New Testament was written, the word is harpazo, and it literally translates seized or snatched. And when the Bible was translated into Latin called the Latin Vulgate, the word that was used in Latin for caught up, which is harpazo in the Greek, 
was raptus. And that's where we get our English word rapture from. Raptus in Latin means to be seized, caught up, or snatched. And so this is what Paul is writing about here. He's speaking about the rapture. Now, when he writes about being caught up together with them, church, who's the them? Look at verse 15 again. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. What does that mean? As an example, let's just say that Jesus came back today. Who are those who are alive and remain? That would be us, right? But it says there that we will not go before those who are asleep. Now, in the New Testament, that's right. The word sleep is just another word for the word death. It doesn't mean, as, as some denominations will teach us, that when you die, your soul, go, your soul goes to sleep in the grave, and you don't wake up until the second coming. That's absolutely incorrect. Because the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. When we die, our spirit separates from our body and goes to be with Jesus, but our physical body will remain in the grave. And what happens to it? It decomposes, right? So when he says, we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep, that means that those believers who have already fallen asleep, who have already passed away, they are going to go before we go. It says there in verse 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Which means that those Christians who died before the trumpet call of God, graves are going to be opened. And those dead physical bodies that have returned to dust will be miraculously changed and become a glorified body. And those glorified bodies will rise from the graves to be, re, to be reunited with the spirits that are in heaven so that those who have died before us will get their glorified bodies first. And get this church, we who are alive and remain will receive our glorified bodies on the way up. Either way, we are going to get a glorified body when we meet the Lord in the air. Amen? Amen. Some of you are saying, I can't wait for those glorified bodies, right? <laughs> My body just doesn't operate the way that it used to. I can't wait for that body. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 goes into great detail about our glorified bodies. And the Apostle Paul says in verses 51 to 53, he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. And I just love what it says in the next two verses. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. 
O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? Amen? Just as the Lord received his glorified body after he was resurrected from the grave, we are going to receive our glorified bodies at the trumpet call of God. Amen, somebody. Now, church, I'm, I'm sure some of you are wondering, what happens to my Aunt Dorothy or my best friend John or my Uncle Charlie that was cremated? They're not buried in the grave, so how will they receive their glorified bodies? I mean, the ashes have been spread in the sea or over some special place. How will they receive the glorified bodies? Let me just settle your hearts this morning. The same God who formed the universe and cast all the stars into outer space and formed you and me from the dust can bring on Dorothy and your dear friend John and Uncle Charlie back. Amen? The molecular composition of these people will miraculously be brought back together. It's no problem for God. It's not a problem for God. Suddenly, little canisters on people's mantles will be, will be gone because <laughs> cremation is not an issue. Right? You can decompose either quickly through cremation or over a long period of time through natural decomposition. But whichever way... God is able to take all the molecular components of every human being who has ever died in Christ and bring it together into a glorified body. It reminds me of a story I heard of this man who lost his wife at the age of 90, the ripe old age of 91. And one of her wishes before she died was that she wanted to be cremated. But she said, I want you to cremate me, but I want you to keep you by my side wherever you go. He took this request literally, and after she was cremated, he put her ashes in a big tin canister that would kind of disguise that it wasn't ashes so that he could keep it with him. And he kept it with him wherever he went. One day he went and visited one of his best friends. They had a lunch together, and his friend asked him if he wanted something to drink. He replied and said, I'll, I'll have a cup of coffee, thank you. He got his drink, and after a while, he said, what type of coffee is this? Because it's like nothing I've ever tasted before. <laughs> the friend replied and said, no, I don't have coffee. I just used the canister, the coffee from the canister you left on the table. Because this man put his wife's, his, his, uh, wife's ashes in a canister that had a name of some coffee on it, Right? That brings a whole new meaning to a husband and a wife becoming one flesh, right? <laughs> now, church, I don't think that's a true story, right? But you know what? God could even take care of that. That's not a problem for God, right? The dead in Christ will rise first and get their glorified bodies, and then we who remain will get our glorified bodies on the way up. Yeah, Frisco. might have been Frisco or something, I don't know. And listen, I certainly don't mean to be insensitive to anyone whose family members are in the grave or who have been cremated. Just remember, to be absent with the body is immediately to be with the Lord. And the only time those people are going to worry about their bodies is when they get their glorified bodies one day. Amen. Let's move on. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, verses 37 to 42, For as were the days of Noah... So will be the coming of the Son of Man. 
For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. And church, what is Jesus referring to here? He's referring to the rapture. He gives this picture of two men working side by side, one's a believer, one's not, And the believer is going to be snatched away suddenly, and the unbeliever is going to be left behind. There are two women that are working side by side. One's a believer, one's not. The believer is going to be caught up suddenly, and again, the unbeliever is going to be left right there. Now, what's really important to note here is that Jesus compares that to the days of Noah. Because this is a reference that is very important as a pre-tribulation position. And by the way, you can compare Matthew chapter 24 to Luke chapter 17. Because in Luke chapter 17, when Jesus tells a story, Luke records how Jesus compared it to the days of Noah. And he adds that Jesus also compared it to the days of Lot. Now what is significant about these references to the days of Noah and Lot is that you have righteous people, Noah and Lot and their families, living in a very unrighteous world. And what God did is He took the righteous people out before calamity and catastrophe came. He spared Noah and his family, ate in all on the ark, before judgment came upon the world by way of flood. Lot and his family were spared before God rained down fire and sulfur upon Sodom and Gomorrah. These were righteous people living among unrighteous people, and God spared them. Which I believe that this is evidence, more evidence, church, for God taking Christians from the earth before the great tribulation. It's consistent. Jesus compares his coming and the rescuing of his bride to the days of Noah and Lot. And you know what? Jesus says it will happen suddenly. In Luke chapter 17, verses 26 through 30, he says, Just as it were in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Right? The righteous will be spared from these things. And church, what you have here is the unannounced event for the world. But we should be aware of it in advance because we have the scriptures, right? People are just going to be living life like they normally would. And all of a sudden, Christ is going to return in the clouds. There's going to be the sound like a trumpet and the church is going to be taken up. Now church, I have a a number of other passages of scripture that I, I want to show you as we build our understanding of what the rapture is about. But we're not going to have enough time to get through all of them today. 
We'll get to that next time. But what I want to leave you with as we start to close, close is something I would say practical and, and thought-provoking. You know, church, most biblical scholars who take the pre-trib position will agree that there is nothing to be fulfilled from a prophetic point of view for the rapture to occur. Yes, there are still some things that must take place before the second coming, but the sudden return of Jesus in the clouds to fetch his church could happen at any moment. Which left me with such a burning question throughout this week as I was preparing this message. The question of not am I saved, but the question of would I be ready to meet the Lord in the current state of my Christian life? If he were to return tonight or tomorrow, would I and would you be okay to meet the Lord without any real regrets? And I'm not talking about being a, a perfect Christian because there, there is no such thing. But would I at that point of meeting Jesus face to face as of today be okay with the gift of grace that he's given me? The free gift that he purchased with his own life. As well as the gifts and callings that he's given me to serve the body of Christ to fulfill its mission. The Bible very clearly tells us that the bridegroom will return for the bride at any moment. Some will be ready, some won't. There are many warnings about being ready for the Lord's return throughout Scripture. Which means, and, and here's the principle. And I'm going to use a quote from a pastor called Skip Heitzig. Here's the principle. The Bible's revelation of the world's consummation should bring godly motivation. Let me say that again. The Bible's revelation of the world's consummation, which means the end of all things, should bring godly motivation. You see, there is something that you and I know as Christians. We know what is coming. The world doesn't know what is coming, and even if you tell them, they'll probably say, what are you smoking, my friend? Right? Give me some of that, that stuff you're drinking. Just like it was in the days of Noah, they don't believe it, right? They dismiss it. They, they laugh about it. But you and I know better. Because you and I can see by prophetic scripture what no one else is seeing. Therefore, here's the point. Therefore, if anybody ought to be ready and involved and passionate in our living and serving as of right now, not sometime in the distant future. As of right now, it ought to be us. Amen, somebody. Amen. And church, that's what I want to leave you with today. If the Lord would return this evening, or as you're on your way home from church this afternoon, or when you're collecting your groceries tomorrow afternoon, just ask yourself the same question I've been asking. Would I be ready to meet the Lord in the current state of my Christian life? In your quiet time this week, ask the Lord what it is that He wants you to work on and work through and get involved in. And allow the Lord to highlight those areas of your life and get busy with the business of His kingdom. Amen? The Apostle Paul, in his closing words, before he was martyred for his faith, he said this in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. He said, finally, 
There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And I want to ask you, church, do you long for his appearing? Because he's coming again. He's coming again, and when the trumpet call of God sounds, whether you pre-trip, post-trip, mid-trip, I don't care, I'm going up. We are going up, amen? We're going to get into this uh, into some more detail next time, but let's just pray together this morning. Father God, as we come to the end of this time of worship and a reflection on your truth, we are so grateful for the revelation of your word, the guidance it provides, and the hope it instills in our hearts. Lord, as we continue on this journey of faith, help us to remain steadfast in our anticipation of the imminent return. May we heed the warnings and encouragements of Scripture, always striving to live lives that honor you. Give us the wisdom and strength to keep our hearts aligned with your purposes, seeking to be ready for that glorious moment when you will return for your bride, the church. And as we await your return, Lord, equip us to live lives of purpose and impact. May our faith shine brightly in a world that desperately needs the hope and transformation that only you can bring. And Lord, finally, we thank you for the grace that saves us, the truth that sustains us, and the promise of eternal life that awaits us. May we live each day in the light of your word and the hope of your return. We pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen and amen.